Today is two, two shows in one. Firstly, we will look at one of the most neglected incidents in U.S. railroad history, and secondly, we will consider the tyranny of the perpetually offended. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. At one time in America, rolling on the rails required men of steel not supermen, but proud men, as potent as the burning coal that powered their locomotives. But major obstructions lay ahead that blocked their progress. Robber barons, labor disputes, and an uncertain White House. It was a matter of iron horses and warring forces. Welcome to Watching America. As many of you may be aware, I am certainly British by birth, but I am also American by choice. I have been in love with this country, my adopted country, since I was a boy of five when my grandmother gave me a model of the Statue of Liberty and I inquired what it referenced and what it was all about. And she told me of America. And even at that tender age, I knew I wanted to go there. Well, the love fest has never stopped, and subsequently, I always want to learn more and more and more about my adopted country. And my guest today has been a great asset in that regard, particularly in a part of American history that I have, well, hitherto been unaware of. The author is Jack Kelly. His latest book is entitled The Edge of Anarchy, The Railroad Barons, The Gilded Age, and The Greatest Labor Uprising in America. He begins with a particular quote from the then, during the period, United States Attorney General Richard Olney, who said, We have been brought to the ragged edge of anarchy. That was no overstatement. The book begins in 1893 with Grover Cleveland as the president at the time, and ceremoniously, with a push of a button, he starts the World's Fair in Chicago. At the same time, significantly, there is a display, which is in the transportation building at the World's Fair, of Pullman sleeping cars. In fact, many of the people who attended the World's Fair would have taken Pullman sleeping cars to get there. Enter the name George Mortimer Pullman, who at the age of 62 was already worth $60 million. Would you please welcome to Watching America, Mr. Jack Kelly. Welcome, sir. How are you? Very great to, to be with you. Good. I would like to know, first of all, um, what inspired you to look at this particular time of history, um, specifically the 1890s? 
Well, I think a lot of people would agree with you. Uh, a lot of Americans would agree that it's a time that they don't know much about or have vaguely heard about and didn't really know what it had to do with. Uh, some people mentioned to me they'd heard of the Pullman car, but they didn't know there was a Mr. Pullman. And what I'm always looking for in writing a book is a, a great story with the interesting characters. And this was one of them, and it happened to occur in a time that is sort of forgotten in the hazy past. Uh, now, it's one of those uh, between wars uh, times in history, and nobody really knows too much about what, what was happening at the time. But, of course, for the people that lived at that time, it was the very vibrant present. So I think those two things really drew me to the subject. I have to tell you, Mr. Jack Kelly, that you have written a marvellous work, and it was so easy for me to read. In doing research, sometimes uh, there can be elements of it just, well, just feeling like that work, but it wasn't in the case of reading this book. I should also point out that the, the author of two prior very successful uh, tombs, which was called Band of Giants, the first one, and then Heaven's Ditch, and that you not only are a historian, but you also are a novelist and a journalist, and a recipient of the Daughters of the American Revolution Award for historical um, award for, for writing about various periods of the United States. And in particular, I could not put this book down because in a sense, uh, to use a cliche, thank you, Mr. D Dickens, it is a tale of two cities. It's a tale of Chicago. Uh, certainly we go out west. And Chicago at one time was called the Rome of the Railroads. Can you explain that? Well, the um, the development of the railroads before the Civil War had pretty much reached out to Chicago, and uh, of course it was before the Transcontinental Line. Uh, once, even during Lincoln's uh, term and during the 1860s, there was a great push to complete the uh, Transcontinental Rail Line and take the railroads all the way to the West Coast. At that point, there was a tremendous boom in railroad building in America in the 1870s and 80s in particular. And Chicago was at the forefront of that, and the trains was the biggest city in the Midwest, so the trains going out to the West, most of them originated in Chicago, and the trains from the East had already headed towards Chicago. So it became the biggest rail hub uh, in America. I think there was about 27 different rail lines that had trains that either originated in Chicago or, or passed through Chicago on their way to somewhere else. One of the things I like about your book is you don't uh, tend to demonize personalities. You recognize their strengths and weaknesses. It's extremely balanced, I thought. And getting back to the whole idea of the tale of two cities, um, looking at Pullman, this is an account of a man who, with enterprising thought, perhaps manipulative thought, depending on how wants to, one wants to judge it, actually develops a part of Chicago or south of Chicago, a, a city of a sort, Pullman, Illinois, uh, which is on one level supposedly an antidote to squalor and slums and on another level very advantageous for Mr. Pullman. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I, I would agree with you that uh, a lot of people like to look at history in terms of black and white and heroes and villains. And to me, it's uh, it's much more fascinating to look at the complexities of the different characters. And George Pullman uh, was a very complex man. He was one of what is known as the robber barons. He was extremely wealthy, uh, but he was somewhat of an idealist as well, very much a visionary uh, and very much a business uh, genius. So he made a lot of money in the construction of the sleeping car, which when I mentioned the Transcontinental Railroad, the people suddenly could go out to California in a week. They wanted to travel in comfort. People could afford to do that. 
and he developed railroad cars that were very comfortable, very luxurious, and can be converted into sleeping cars. Um, he made a huge fortune on that. He built one of the biggest factories in the world. Uh, at that time, was actually not even in Chicago. It was about 15 miles south of the center of the city. He needed to have housing for his workers, and so he built what was called a model town. It was a company town, very neat brick homes for the workers, um, parks, playing fields, schools, libraries. And it was he was uh, actually touted as a messiah of the future of cities. This is the way cities should be built, uh, and this is way, the way they should be laid out. And um, he, he really gloried in that reputation and having accomplished that. But he ran into trouble as the time went on, and uh, the, the city became uh, sort of came back and, and became a terrible problem for him. Now, we have a multiplicity of characters in this. I mean, I, that's one of the things that makes the book so enthralling. So you have George Mortimer Pullman, who we've uh, already alluded to, and then comes the second primary character, Eugene V. Debs. Would you like to explain a little bit about this gentleman? Yeah, Eugene Debs was uh, had started out his life as a worker on the railroads. Uh, he he got a job when he was fourteen and um, was actually out as a teenager, shoveling coal into a locomotive steam locomotive uh, firebox. And uh, he then got laid off, and he began a what was really the niche that he found that suited him perfectly as a union organizer. And he was an official of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen. He traveled the country, he loved to talk to people, he was a very outgoing sort of character. And he found this idea of solidarity with, within the Brotherhood of Firemen and was very enthusiastic about it. But as time went on, he saw that the different unions in the railroad industry, the engineers had a union, the conductors had their, a different union. They didn't necessarily cooperate. They often undercut each other. And he thought a better idea would to have one big union that would include everybody that worked on the railroads. And the railroads at that time, of course, were the absolute biggest business in America and employed the most people. He set up the American Railway Union in 1893, which was the first industrial union. This was the first union in America that included all the workers, no matter what they did, whatever their skills or uh, area they worked in, they were all in the same union. Uh, it was a very popular idea. Almost overnight, he had 150,000 members and was probably the most powerful labor leader in the country. To put things in perspective, you write that three-quarters of the nation's wealth were in the control of 200,000 citizens, while industrial workers made less than $10 a week for a 60-hour week. Were most laborers unaware of their power until the likes of Mr. Debs came along? Uh, there had been rights, I know, in the railroads in the 1860s and things of this nature, but was he the singular visionary to, to reignite a determinism, if you will, to unionize? It had been sort of a rocky road for unions. It was it was never really clear during that those early years of industrialization was a union even legal. What should a union do for workers? There was a, a group called the Knights of Labor that did include almost anybody, including small businessmen, could join. Um, but it was the labor movement was really trying to find its its um, 
uh, bearings at that time, and they had pretty much gone for the craft union, which was, they thought, well, if carpenters all have a certain skill, if they were to join together, they would have power based on their skill. They couldn't be replaced by people who didn't know what they're doing. Um, and that, that was the predominant form of unionism. And um, the, the craft union movement was also just getting going, but it was a little bit more advanced. The idea of an industrial union was much more radical and that was the idea that Debs originated, the all-inclusive union. He thought that was the way workers could achieve power, not through their particular skills that they had. Well, I'd like to go back just for a moment uh, to your reference to the Knights of Labor. Now, as as you allude to it, they were somewhat of a, if I'm not misinterpreting it, somewhat of a rather secretive dealing agency. Uh, am I incorrect in that? Uh, no, that that was correct. They, they were uh, both a secretive and a fraternal group, as were like the uh, brotherhoods in the railroad industry. Though they weren't secret, they were they were seen as like um, the Freemasons or a, a group of people, and was had a social aspect to it. And the Knights of Labor were more along that lines than a than a specific active labor union. They were a, a pretty diffuse group. Now, there is a third character that enters the scene, and that's James Jerome Hill, otherwise known as Big Jim Hill. Could you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, uh, Jim Hill was one of the um, monumental railroad developers. Uh, these tended to be larger-than-life characters, a lot of the early guys that went in. They took a lot of risks. They they got together a lot of capital, and they built these railroads out into the, the West. Uh, Hill, in particular, uh, put through the Great Northern Line, which ran pretty much along parallel to the border of Canada in the far north, all the way out from Minneapolis to uh, Seattle area. It happened somewhat by coincidence that his um, workers went out on strike, and they had recently joined this American Railway Union that Debs had set up, and they wanted uh, their case to be arbitrated. And Debs went up to Minneapolis and St. Paul and uh, negotiated with uh, Big Jim Hill, and uh, Hill decided to he would take a chance on arbitration. He thought his friends in the business community in, in St. Paul were going to back him, and it turned out that they didn't. They backed the workers because they were, they were eager to get the whole thing settled. So it turned out that the union had a great victory in that um, strike, which came in the spring of 1894, uh, just about two months before the Pullman strike, which is the strike that my book focuses on. Well, let's back up again to um, the event of the, the World's Fair, the Columbian World's Fair in Chicago. And uh, everyone is is delighted with the basically the, the displays of technology and innovation. And we have, as mentioned before at the outset, President Grover Cleveland's there, and uh, he's fat and happy, as are many of his uh, consorts and people around him who are also uh, mega personalities in in industry. Meanwhile, uh, the earth is not so solid for the United States of America, at least financially, uh, because within days, um, the market plummets and there is ensuing chaos. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the the 19th century was noted for the up and down business cycle, a very severe business cycle. It'd be a boom and bust, and and the, when the bust came, they were pretty severe. 
And the one that came in 1893 was very severe. It was, uh, led to what was known then as the Great Depression, and that title for it sort of stuck until an even worse depression came along in the 1930s. But it was a very, very severe, and they, they don't even know how many people were unemployed, but it was getting up to like 40% of the country was unemployed and no safety net and people literally starving. Speaking of workers, you state that the mechanization of America and also mass immigration hurt the development of, of American workers. Um, some would argue that there's that same issue today and it's still a parallel with the 21st century. Uh, do you think so or, or less so? Uh, I actually think there's quite a few parallels uh, between what was then called the Gilded Age and what some people now call the New Gilded Age of today. Um, the inequality of wealth and income, the um, the suppression of labor unions or the disappearance of labor unions, practically, the lack of regulation of industry, the the ability of business to influence the government, all those were things that were very prominent in the Gilded Age and are also either prominent now or coming back now. One of the interesting things in your book is you uh, have various encounters between the, the the cardinal players again, one of which was between mogul boss Jim Hill and Debs. Uh, there's a meeting of sorts, and there's a, an issue you allude to of intimidation between the two, uh, being fearful of each other. How did that go, and where did it take place? Well, that was during the negotiation over the strike, and and Debs went up to St. Paul, where Hills Railroad was headquartered, and Debs was he was sort of riding a wave of of personal popularity and you know feeling the power that he had from the sudden vast increase in membership of his union and the the fact that they were holding on in the strike and they they were able to shut down the uh, Jim Hills Railroad. And he went in and sat down with Hill, and it was sort of a, a stare down. Hill said, you know, I'm going to bring in replacement workers, or I'm going to break the strike, I'm going to break your union. And Deb said, well, you know, essentially, you, you go ahead and try, and we'll see who comes out on top. And they stared at each other back and forth in different meetings for a number of days before Hill finally decided he would go for the arbitration, which he thought he had an advantage in. And um, when it came to arbitration, uh, the arbitrators backed Debs instead of Big Jim Hill. Well, we have by this time, obviously, the Telegraph. And as a result of that, we also have uh, news relays of a sort going across the Telegraph. So newspapers everywhere are covering information. So it's an acceleration of of the transmission of knowledge, uh, contemporary knowledge for that period. And as a result, there are persons across the country who are deciding that they're going to flex their muscles or at least move their legs to the point of marching on Washington. And we have the very interesting account of a Jacob Coxey who uh, starts what is referenced as an army, although that wasn't his intent, marching on to Washington. Can you tell my listeners about that, please? Yeah, I discussed uh, Coxey's army and the sort of the lead up to give a sense of how fraught the situation was in America during 1894. We were already a year into this terrible depression, massive unemployment, and Coxey was actually a businessman. He came up with an idea that modern economists would say was a pretty good idea, that the government should issue bonds, spend the money on improving roads, and the roads in those days were, were in very bad shape, 
and it would put people to work and leave behind a valuable asset that would continue to generate revenue. It all made perfect sense, but the the government didn't want to hear anything about it. It, it was just alien to um, what Grover Cleveland thought about how to handle these things. So Coxie got together a group of unemployed men uh, at his home in Ohio, and they actually did walk all the way to Washington, D.C., and he said, we're going to present this idea to Congress and make, you know, make them face up to making a decision about it. And they did, and it got huge amounts of press. It was the first time that Americans had actually marched on Washington. And um, when he got there, he, he was just totally ignored by the Congress. Um, there were other contingents of his army, which, as you say, was not really an army. It was just a group of marchers. But there were contingents out in the West that actually um, uh, commandeered trains and stole trains and uh, went speeding on to the East to try to get to Washington. So it was quite a raucous situation. And it really gave birth to an American tradition, which was the March on Washington. And it began to there were other marches for women's suffrage and other causes, uh, culminating probably in the in the 1963 march for civil rights. Well, you describe with uh, Jacob Coxey's march. I mean, there was a, 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 a impromptu band that started with you know thumping of a bass drum on, and trumpets and what have you, and actually people standing by the sides of the roads, and these would be gravel roads in many cases, obviously, with pitchforks, and some you know approving and cheering, and others giving a, 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 a negative look towards those passing by as if you were a fool. So there was no shortage of division even within the country folk on the side observing this, as you describe, on, on the way to the nation's capital. Yeah, and there was, I, I would say, even overshadowing that, there was a great hunger for a spectacle. And people were out to anything that was different. You know, they, people worked, you know, farmers and even, you know, uh, industrial workers, they all worked 12-hour days, uh, six days a week didn't have a lot of time off, didn't get to see much other than what they saw every day after day. So when something different happened, it threw huge crowds, and a lot of it was just you know enthusiasm for seeing a show. And uh, Coxie and his people really made the most of that. They, they had uh, big banners, and uh, some of his ideas, uh, in addition to the, to the uh, economic ideas, he had some pretty uh, interesting ideas about uh, reincarnation and other things. So some people laughed. Some people thought he was great. So, well, since the founding of this nation, there's been a disdain for the idea of a of a nouveau aristocratic uh, series of persons that could rule over American laborers. With that civil unrest brewing across America uh, in the 1890s, did the robber barons fear the likes of a storming of Versailles, if you will? Did they fear a unionized army coming against their own mansions? Uh, absolutely. The, the, um, the, the 1894 and the Pullman strike as a as sort of emblematic of what happened that year was in some ways a crisis of industrialism, this, this uh, intense industrialization of the country that had taken place, particularly after the Civil War in the 17, uh, 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s. And um, there was definitely a, a concern, particularly because People had, were, many of the people alive had lived through the Civil War. They'd seen what real contention was about, you know, real violence. 
so the people that had the money um, were concerned, and they were um, one of the artifacts of that era is the armories you see in many American cities and towns um, across the country, uh, particularly, I, I guess, in the East. Um, there's one of the biggest buildings in New York is on uh, Park Avenue. It was this, the 7th Regiment Armory. Uh, was built in that era to have uh, military capability right in the middle of town in case things got out of hand, in case there was an insurrection. So you'll see those armories in almost all the cities around on the East Coast. Well, many men have worked on the railroad all the live long day, and you have worked on a very successful book, The Edge of Anarchy. The Railroad Barons, The Gilded Age, and The Greatest Labor Uprising in America. My guest has been Jack Kelly. Thank you so much for being with us, Jack. I wish you continued success. And as I said before, this is a wonderful read. Thank you for honoring us with your insight and presence. Alan, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. I'm very glad to do it. Thank you. Lightning can be a destructive energy. Moreover, one can never be certain of exactly where or when it will strike. Much the same can be said of another destructive energy that comes in the form of the offended. With an unexpected flash, those who are offended can burst forth thundering with indignation at a declared wrong. And it would seem that one generation in particular seems to specialize in being offended. I'm so offended, super offended, always offended by you, so offended by you. I'm offended at you for being offended at me, I'm offended that we do not agree on tolerating, toleration of tolerating things all differently. I'm offended that I'm offended by you, offended that you don't have a clue of what's offensive, who's offended, too defensive, what's even true. I'm so offended I am the best, everyone is always so impressed at how offended I can be, offended by everything I see. I'm so offended I've reached offendance, the offended version of transcendent. I'm so I am delighted to welcome to Watching America Jonathan Haidt. He is a social psychologist, and he is also the professor of ethical leadership at New York University's Sten School of Business. Now, his focus is the psychology of morality, and he has written about such things three times. His first book was The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. That was in 2006. Six years later, in 2012, he wrote The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And most recently, he has written with co-author Greg Lukianoff a book entitled The Coddling of the American Mind. Now, that might ring a bell for some of you. Alan Bloom wrote a book at the beginning of the 1990s called The Closing of the American Mind. Well, uh, in this case, Jonathan Haidt, with his, with his co-writer, have built upon that idea in particularly 
in relation to what's happening in current universities and colleges across America, particularly in relation to political correctness. My guest, Jonathan Haidt, has a BA in philosophy from Yale University, and he went on to earn his PhD in psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. And it is, again, an utter delight to have you here. May I call you Jonathan? Oh, please do. Hello, Alan. Pleasure Good. to be here. Uh, wonderful. I, we, we so enjoyed having Greg on the program that we wanted to do it again and uh, to uh, have, you know, if you will, both bookends, uh, no pun intended here, mm-hmm. and uh, and get your perspective on things. I began by telling him of an incident, which I, I will surmise much faster than I did with him when he was on, uh, Greg was on the program, uh, about something that happened to me. I'm a, a university professor myself. And I had made the reference to my background and that I have taught at many schools, and I described myself as being a uh, academic gypsy, uh, to which there was a young lady <laughs> right. took umbrage yep. at this. And she, she called you out for that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so I remember driving home and thinking to myself, what is the problem that I can't use a rather benign, innocent term like academic gypsy? Mm-hmm. And so she wanted to rally to the cause to defend gypsies, to defend those who do not need to be defended. Now, your book addresses this and so much more. What do you make of what's happening nowadays? Um, so there's a kind of a phase change. There's a, a moral culture change that occurred around tw- between 2012, 2014, and a lot of things fed into it. Um, so Greg was really the first to diagnose this, or one of the first. Greg works on college campuses uh, as the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. So obviously you know all this, and some of your listeners know it, but some don't. So very briefly, um, Greg observed weird things happening on college campuses in 2014 of the sort that you mentioned, that is students suddenly acting as though so much was offensive and students calling others out for – generally for a single word. That's what's interesting. It's not that you did something wrong or that you expressed an idea. It's usually for a single word actually um, or something like that. And it's – and so we couldn't understand this, and they would often justify it and say that they, it, that they didn't feel safe, like that one might have said that you were creating an environment to be unsafe for people who were Roma or something like that. And so we couldn't understand it. Uh, Greg and I thought at first that it was something strange that was being – uh, caused by what we were doing on campus. And so we wrote our Atlantic article. We wrote an article about this in the Atlantic magazine. And uh, that came out in 2015. And then all hell broke loose a few months later, not because of our article, but just because things were really brewing and they blew up at Halloween. And so uh, a year or two later, Greg decided that we, should, we knew a lot more. The problem was much more serious. We should turn this into a book. And in the book, we go deep, deep, deep into the many interesting historical and social and sociological forces that all came together around 2014, 2015 uh, to create this new attitude in which students are looking for offenses. They're looking as hard as they can, and not most students, but some students are looking for things like gypsy. Um, what's another one? Uh, somebody told me about a business meeting uh, where somebody had said, well, that would be like selling ice to Eskimos, uh, which is you know, a metaphor for, you sure. know, has a kind of obvious purpose. And someone called, called her out on that. Like, you can't say that. Um, in fact, here's a bizarre one. A, a friend of mine told me that she said, let's go get Chinese food. And her daughter called her out on that. You can't say that. Now, I don't <laughs> understand what you're supposed to say. Yes. But my point, is, my point is that there's a new incentive structure for some young people in which they get credit socially for calling out racial or gender insensitivity on the part of others. What do you think of the misapplication of the term hate, which now has become synonymous with simply disagreeing? 
The thing is that hate is a moral emotion. I think we have to be very clear about this. Um, if you hate somebody or something, it's almost certainly because you've made a moral judgment about them. The, the term hate and hate speech is, is used in a political way. It, it doesn't seem to have a clear and fixed meaning. Well, the reason I ask that is because, and let me categorically say that I'm not an advocate for hate, far from it. But I am an advocate for people having the right to hate me, providing they don't hurt me. But people do have a right, if they wish to, uh, have a, have a depiction of me and put it on their dartboard in their basement and throw darts at it. Mm-hmm. And I would, you know, say that the, the right. Constitution of the United States permits that. So uh, there's a lot of confusion about speech on campus. People talk about the First Amendment. Um, I don't think the First Amendment is terribly relevant, and let me just explain it like this. Um, I'm so glad that I live in a country with a constitution that has a First Amendment so that I can say whatever I want and I don't have to worry that I will be arrested by the police. It never occurs to me as an American that I will be arrested for my ideas. So the First Amendment guarantees that. Um, But I work on a college campus, and I... I'm very concerned that people are now afraid to speak up in class. We're afraid to challenge each other. Uh, that cuts to the heart of what we do. That renders what we do very difficult. And so what we need are, are speech norms that help us do what we need to do. And that means uh, if, you know, if people have a constitutional right to sing racist songs, sure, they can go ahead and do that in the public square and they can't be arrested. But they're not going to do it in my classroom, and they're not going to do it on my campus. There are going to be consequences if they do that on campus. So if you're expressing hatred, um, it's not a crime in the United States. It's not literally a legal crime. You're legally allowed to hate people. You're legally allowed to be racist. Um, But the norms we need on campus are those that are conducive to civil debate, discourse, challenge, and dissent. And that's what we're losing. Because the new norms say if anyone expresses an opinion that could be taken as marginalizing uh, by a member of one of the seven or so major uh, uh, historically marginalized groups, that counts as hate speech. And that person must be shamed and possibly expelled. That, I think, is, is just messed up. But my, you know, vantage point is if people are hating, by gum, by gosh, by golly, I want to know it. I want to know what they're thinking. Yeah, that's right. So I think that the situation you describe in the classroom is one in which you and some of your students are playing entirely different games. And so uh, how long have you been teaching for? How long have you been in classrooms? Oh, three decades. Okay. So, uh, you know, and I've seen this change, like you've indicated, by the way, uh, really in a paramount, large fashion in the last 10 years. It was not like this 15 years ago. No, that's, no it wasn't like this in 2012, 2013. It really – it was between 2014 and 2017 is really when things changed very, very rapidly on campus. And we, we'll come back to this, but actually it turns out it changed off campus too. It's what, what's called the Great Awakening. There's uh, some new research on that. We'll come back to that. What, what hit me around 2015, 2016 is that there are multiple games that one can can play with language. And if we're playing the same game, then it's fun and, and we communicate. Um, but sometimes, so, you know, right, like right now, we go back and forth and um, we, we're, we stay on topic, but the topic uh, changes by mutual consent. So there's a game and we're both playing it. Uh, and as a, as a seminar teacher, sometimes it feels a bit like you're playing maybe tennis. You know, you hit, you hit a ball and you don't know how they're going to hit it back. You hope someone's going to hit it back well. And you go back and forth and other people hit it back and forth. Um, and then somebody tackles you. And you say, what? 
wait, no, mm. this is not football. That's that's oh, that's outside. Right. Here, here we're playing tennis. Um, but some of the students are playing a very different game. And I believe it, it is a game motivated by a concern for justice, a particular kind of justice. It goes by the name of social justice. Social justice is a kind of justice. Um, but there's a place for social justice activities. And when when people think that their top priority or the game that they want to play is the game should be played everywhere, then what you get is you get, say, a member of the Trump administration going to a restaurant in Washington, D.C., and he gets shouted out and shouted down and told to leave. Well, that's the politics game. And we play politics sometimes. There's a place for for political anger and hatred. Um, But we think usually that restaurants, church services, dentists' offices, there should be many places in which we're playing different games. Uh, And what Greg and I think has happened is this new moral order came sweeping in among members of Gen Z, not the millennials so much. It's really Gen Z, kids born in 1996 and later. Um, They've learned this from social media. They were raised in a social media environment that we cannot understand. Um, And they behave very differently than the students that we're used to. It's making it very difficult and a lot less fun, certainly, um, to be a professor. You said there's a, a political place for hatred. I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. Um, Well, it's perfectly okay to hate the president. Um, Some people hated Obama. Some people hated George W. Bush. In my book, The Righteous Mind, the book is all about how we evolved for tribal warfare. We have tribal sentiments. We're really, really good at doing us versus them. Uh, and we, you know, our hatred and our attacks on others tend not to change their minds. They tend to anger them and make them fight back harder. And off we go to the races in a polarization cycle. That's the way it's been for thousands and thousands of years. So I'm not saying that you should hate your enemies. I'm not saying it's effective to hate your enemies. Uh, my first book, The, the Happiness Hypothesis, um, it, it goes into ancient wisdom and how, in fact, it actually doesn't work that well to hate your enemies, that love tends to work better, um, that you should find skillful ways to de-escalate. So I'm not saying it's wise. I'm just saying you have every right to. So let's talk about why this is happening. Um, I've been studying political civility and incivility and political polarization since 2007. So I began my research uh, in morality and moral psychology in the 1990s in graduate school, looking at how cultures vary, how how how, uh, my dissertation was done in Brazil and the United States. My surprise finding was that on a a set of kind of strange moral dilemmas that triggered emotion, it turned out that the social class differences were actually bigger than the cross-national differences. And it was only in the late 90s, as the American culture war started heating up, that I realized, wow, left and right in the United States are becoming like you know, Brazil versus the United States, or, or they're becoming like different countries. And by the early 2000s, left and right had a different U.S. constitution, different U.S. history books, different climate science textbooks. We really were beginning to live on different planets. And then social media was invented. And that just threw everything to hell. So if you can imagine a country that's already polarizing, that's already uh, in the 90s, you begin getting rising cross-partisan hatred. And cable TV is a part of this. Um, when cable TV comes in in the 1980s, becomes popular in the 1980s, now it's easier for Americans to live in different worlds with different facts. Before the 1980s, we had three television networks. Everyone got their news from the same place. I presume you grew up in the UK, so the BBC had that centralizing role in the UK. ITV1, ITV2, yeah, go ahead. Um, so, but if you if you see at least the United States, if you see it as a country that had a lot holding it together in the 1940s, 50s, and into the 60s. Cohesion. 
so we had very high cohesion. We had uh, we just fought World War II, and then on into the Cold War, we were the champions of democracy around the world. We had a sense of mission. We'd had the moon landing. Obviously, the 60s was we had a lot of division and conflict and violent conflict. So it's not as though everything was great until the 80s. But the point is that if you think about America as a country, kind of like spinning around really fast, and pieces are falling off of it, and it's going to fall apart. And you think about what are the forces pulling us together to the center, and what are the forces blowing us apart? The 1940s, 50s, and into the 60s was our time of maximum um, centripetal force, maximum centralizing force. And since then, since the 1980s, one by one, all of of those advantages have fallen away. And it's really in the 21st century that we start realizing, holy cow, there's not a lot keeping us together anymore. And that's when social media comes in. And social media in particular, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, but especially uh, Twitter is, is the main one here, I think. Um, if, you, if you ramp up the passions, you make everyone a lot angrier, and you also shred any conception of a shared fabric of society, any conception that we have shared facts, well, yeah, things are going to feel like they're coming apart. And that's what's happening, I believe. Well, how do we get back to a mindset of the honorable opposition, if you will? That's very, very hard to do. Uh, we may never be able to get back to it, quite frankly. Um, Whoa, what a statement. Yeah, I mean, I shouldn't say it in those terms because, you know, 100 years is a long time. So I shouldn't say never. But what I should say is the next five or 10 years, I expect things to get a lot worse uh, because the trends the trends blowing us apart are, are still rising. And one of those trends actually is Gen Z. One of those trends is the generation that uh, was raised to find a lot more offensive and to find it much more difficult to work alongside people of different values. Um, so I'm very alarmed about the state of democracy in the United States. Um, I was just in Australia and New Zealand, and wow, they are so much healthier. Um, they have some of our problems, but they don't have a trend towards increased polarization and cross-partisan hatred, at least not much of one. So America um, is suffering from social media in the way that uh, many societies are, but we there are certain like um, openings in our in our skull case, and, and you know Putin or other enemies can just put things in there, and they they'll they drive us crazy. Well, if you see things um, extremely pessimistically as you do, what are the ramifications? I mean, how do you see this borne out by behavior in ten years' time? I mean, are people going to take mm-hmm. it to the streets? Um, I think that Steven Pinker is is right that there's a long so he's the cognitive psychologist at Harvard. He's written two books, basically saying that people like me who are pessimists have always been there and have always been wrong uh, historically, or, or the, at least in the long run they've been wrong. So you know, we have to keep that in mind that that you know if current trends continue, yes, things will fall apart, but current trends often do turn around. Um, however. Uh, if we continue to see a decline in trust in institutions, um, there was more trust in the Supreme Court five or ten years ago. Um, it began dropping with the, the Gore versus Bush uh, decision in 2000. I think the Kavanaugh hearings dropped it even further. Um, that's going to continue dropping, I, I expect. Um, if no branch of government is seen as legitimate, um, if the news media is increasingly seen as illegitimate, uh, if there is no way to get Americans to believe a common set of facts ever again, I think, or um, again, I shouldn't say ever again, in the next five or 10 years, I don't think we'll find a way to get back on the same page. You have said elsewhere that you began to study political psychology uh, largely to help the Democratic political party, mm-hmm. but now you describe yourself as a political centrist. What yes. brought that about and what caused that to happen? So uh, 
um, I'm your sort of stereotypical um, progressive type person in the United States in that I'm Jewish, raised in the New York area, went to an Ivy League school, got a PhD, became a professor. So I'm a total stereotype. And I only voted for the Democrats and identified as a Democrat. And all the while I was doing that, the Republican Party was was polarizing and radicalizing and kind of losing its mind in certain ways, um, beginning in the 1990s and then into the into the 2000s. But then they were also winning. They uh, the Democrats uh, have always been very good at snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, and. Um, my my interpretation in 2000 and 2004 was that the Democratic candidates and their advisors did not understand American morality, but I did because I was studying it in my research and looking across cultures, <laughs> and I could help them explain why Americans don't – most Americans don't share the morality of San Francisco and Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, so I began writing memos uh, to the Democrats about how they could use moral psychology to be more effective. Nobody read my memos. I was just a guy writing memos trying to get people to read them. Um, but I, I decided to write a book about this, about moral psychology, and I committed myself to truly understanding conservatives. Uh, I study cultural psychology, uh, you know, which is sort of like anthropology light. Um, and I, I'd spent time in India, and I'd, I'd read a lot of anthropology. And so I committed myself to really understanding conservatives. Um, and so I, I subscribed to some of the best conservative writing, like National Review. I, I watched Fox News on TV. And what I discovered is that you actually can't understand anything until you hear the other side. Well, let me, ask you, let me ask you about media then, if I may. Uh, right. One of the you know, uh, institutions not trusted, as you've uh, alluded to, uh, by the general public. If we do, in fact, read... Uh, according to Pew studies, that as much as 93% of people who work in newsrooms are left. Mm -hmm. Is it surprising to you that a large part of middle America does not trust the media? No, that has to be the case. That's what happens. And the same thing is happening with science. Um, there's research on what Americans think about science and scientists. And until the 1990s, the right had only they were pretty much the same as the left. The right loved science, um, and until the 90s, there was no gap. But what began to emerge as uh, the culture were heated up and as the universities moved from leaning left to being more uniformly or consistently left, Americans began to distrust scientists. Or what I should say is the right began to distrust scientists. Uh, and so I believe that scientists and journalists have a fiduciary duty to the truth that they should uh, try to overcome their biases as individuals, that as a field, they must have political diversity in order to do their job well, that as a field, they have both failed to maintain political diversity, and as a result, they do not do their jobs well. And therefore, uh, in the two fields that are most charged with finding the truth, and I'd say, I guess, law is the third, uh, the court system is the third, um, in the fields charged with finding the truth, um, we are failing. And that's why I and some other professors co-founded an organization called Heterodox Academy. Uh, and I hereby join, uh, invite you to join it, Alan. Okay. Tell it's me about it. Tell me about it. So if you go to heterodoxacademy.org, and heterodox mm -hmm. is the opposite of orthodox. Right. We, we don't think that the academy should be orthodox. We think there should be viewpoint diversity. 
Good. So if uh, uh, so, we're 3,000 professors who've signed on to say that we think viewpoint diversity is important. We have about as many on the left as the right, uh, and we have a larger number of centrists like me. Um, and um, we don't yell and scream. We don't attack universities. We look at it systematically, and we say, how can we do a better job of finding the truth, given how amazingly hard it is to find the truth? Uh, so please join us if there are any professors out there listening to your show. Uh, just go to heterodoxacademy.org and you'll find the join button under under about us. Um, so there, you know, there is hope because most most professors, like most journalists, are pretty reasonable people. And uh, the problem is that the, the the settings we're immersed in are developing norms that are partisan. And and as as the culture war heats up, we, you know, more and more uh, there's more pressure to play the partisan game rather than the truth game. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Alan Campbell, and my guest is Jonathan Haidt, who is the co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind, which has been on the New York Times nonfiction bestsellers for oh, a considerable length of time and for good reason. I, I want to conclude by asking you, uh, what has been the most surprising response that you have received since since the publication of this work? I mean, you were everywhere in media. Mm-hmm. You're, you're yeah. all over uh, outlets, visual and, and audibly, as you are right now. What has surprised you the most? The most surprising response is that there has been almost no pushback. Um, Greg and I were prepared for massive pushback. We were prepared to be attacked in the media. We were prepared to make enemies. We were prepared uh, to be called all kinds of terrible names. And a remarkable thing happened, which is the book came out, and a lot of people, I'd say most people who work with kids in any capacity, have seen that something really bad is going on with kids born after 1996 with Gen Z. Mm. So, you know, there have been a couple of bad reviews of the book, but they don't actually say what's wrong with the book. They just say why Greg and I are bad people. But there's been <laughs> so that's the thing, you know, because you know, you use so that's there's an increasing use of ad hominem arguments yes. and guilt by yeah. association. So there are some. So when if you find a bad review of the book, most likely it'll be mostly ad hominem attacks. Um, but even there, if you read them closely, they don't say that we're wrong, or rather, they don't give any reason to think that we're wrong. So. We're actually really satisfied that we put a lot of time into um, explaining the multiple causal factors. We don't oversimplify things in the book. We don't dumb things down. It's a really complicated sociological detective story. Um, and we're also pretty satisfied that we really tried hard to, to say both sides of things, to not be partisans ourselves. I mean, look, both Greg and I are basically Democrats. We're not on the right, um, although we are more critical of the left than the right in that. That you know, on college campuses, that's what the issue is. Um, nationally, or in Washington, I'm more critical of the right than the left. But on college campuses, the issue is more, I think, an, an issue. It's a fight within the left. But that was a real surprise. That wherever we go, we talk with people, and people come up to us afterwards, uh, and they'll say, like, "Well, I'm a guitar teacher in town, and man, have I seen what you're talking about just in the last mm-hmm. few years? Mm-hmm. If I give a kid some criticism, he crumbles. He won't come back for another lesson." So we've really messed up Gen Z. Gen Z um, social, we didn't even talk about social media's effects on them. But um, so that's been, a, 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 I suppose, a pleasant surprise that that people generally are accepting our analysis. When we had your co-author Greg on, he uh, alluded to the fact that he suspected, and I presume you were in agreement because you wrote the book together, that there's an administrative class at universities and colleges which are really propagating this PC mentality. Yes, I think that's clearly true. There's actually a lot of evidence um, for that. So we tried in our book, we tried not to attack 
administrators. It's very popular to attack administrators and call them bloat. And there's a reason why universities hire all these different administrators. Um, but the, there's two, two important points about them. One is that they are hired to play games other than truth-seeking. They are hired to watch out for the reputation of the university or the health of the students. So they often impose rules that, that complicate or violate academic freedom or curiosity. Uh, so they're often defensive. They're afraid of lawsuits. So they're doing their job. They're not bad people, um, but they, they, the, the rise of the administrative class does make the university less an academic enterprise where we're all playing the same game. It makes it more like any giant corporation where all kinds of stuff happens that's not related to the core purpose of the institution. The other thing to know about it is that there's a special class of administrators that go into camp campus life. They're the ones who work directly with the students, deal with orientation. And uh, we didn't know this when we wrote the book, but Sam Abrams, who's a professor at Sarah Lawrence College, um, did some research. He found some data set where he was able to show that the college life administrators are far to the left even of the faculty. Mm. So the faculty tends to be you know, anywhere from five to, five to one to maybe 20 to one um, left-right in terms of the politics, depending on the department. But the student life people are way to the left of that. They tend to have degrees from education schools, and education schools are among the most doctrinaire, politically correct places in the academy. Mm -hmm. So if universities are hiring people with a PhD in education, they're more likely to embrace a certain kind of social justice that's very zero-sum, confrontational, power structures, everything is power structures. Um, so yeah, the student life uh, administrators, I think those do those do bring in values that are antithetical to academic values. Jonathan Heights, I have so enjoyed talking to you. The Coddling of the American Mind is such a welcomed work for those of us who are in higher education, and uh, I think for the populace at large. And speaking to Greg uh, Lukianov, I never can say his name correctly. Please forgive me. Lukianov. Lukianov. Um, it felt very incomplete not to have you on Watching America. Please come back and join us again with your next tomb that you come out with. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Alan. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Gotta run in a rush. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme tune is provided by Razorlight. Our producer is Paul Bebo. Senior producer, Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm the series creator and host, yours truly, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care. Blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.